Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Jim Donovan. It is currently 2200 hours on September the 3rd, 2020. I am recording from my office on Ventura Boulevard. Uh, I hate this new format. The old servers were working just fine. I don't understand why we had to upgrade. Anyway, doesn't matter. Got the text from Control. Billy Baskins, nine years old. Last seen yesterday by mother playing around the big animal exhibits in the old Los Angeles Zoo in Griffith Park. Mother reported hearing a horse's hoofbeats before her son disappeared. Several children reported missing from this location over the last six months. In each case, a horse was heard before the children went missing. Parents and witnesses denied seeing any horses at the time. Each child turned up dead from apparent exposure several weeks after they go missing. Your objective is to find Billy and deliver him to our auxiliary, Father John, at St. Mary's. He'll make sure the boy is reunited with his mother. Right in the middle of Los Angeles, there's a huge 4,000-acre park called Griffith Park. Back in the 19th century, it was private land that was owned by one eccentric millionaire, Don Fleas. On his deathbed, he wrote his niece out of his will, and she put a curse on the whole park, and on the guy who inherited, and on the lawyer who drew up the will. Can't say I blame her for that last one. Then, to seal the curse in blood, she killed herself. Even though California is relatively young compared to the rest of the country, or any of the ghost stories in Europe, Griffith Park has more than its fair share of mysteries, ghosts, and ghoulies. I had to do some deep dives into the realm of internet conspiracy theories to get a feeling to the truth behind some of those ghost stories. A lot of times, there's truth to the myths. Basically, that scene in Men in Black, where Tommy Lee Jones says the tabloids are the most reliable source of extraterrestrial information? I generally agree, but substitute internet for tabloids. I found four credible ghosts and three different ghost hauntings in the area. The ghost of Don Feliz, his niece's ghost, and the ghost of Nancy Jeanson and Rand Garrett. They were two horny teens who died when a tree limb fell on them, mid-coyus. And of course, there's the usual cavalcade of supernatural creatures, monsters, and fae, who call Griffith Park home. So, my suspect list was narrowed from infinite to near-infinite. I'm sure the LAPD was investigating this and the other missing persons cases, but there's only so much they can do, thanks to police procedures and policy wonks. I have more freedom of action. Plus, unlike the official sources, I can focus on one case, while they are stretched thin due to budget constraints. And of course, because I focus on the paranormal, I can find solutions when the police sometimes can't. I packed my traveling kit, taking along a small backpack full of some water, beef jerky, and a couple of candy bars. You never know how long investigations are going to take. Better to over-prepare than under. I mentally braced myself for the drive down the I-5. While it was still early in the day and traffic wouldn't be too bad, my car doesn't have air conditioning. And it had just hit noon. The drive down was boring, hot, and long, so when I got to the park I was cranky and tired. It's good to know things don't change after childhood. I parked my car and walked to the old zoo. When the park is busy, the place feels charming and inviting. However, this time when I walked up, I began to feel a certain uneasiness. I felt like I was trespassing in an old library. Every breath felt a little heavier, every step a little more difficult. The insects had stopped buzzing, and the birds had stopped chirping. Well, 
mostly. I could still hear a crow cawing. I considered opening myself up to the Verum Visio, the true sight. But in places like this, there are horrors that mortal minds were not meant to peer into. Abysses that drove Nietzsche mad. Therefore, instead of using arcane sight, I chose to investigate the matter as a mundane detective. I would only risk my mind and sanity if I found some material evidence to link me to Billy Baskins. I walked to the big animal caves, where the boy had last been seen. As I expected, there was police tape blocking the cave, but there were no humans around, much less any officers. I ignored the warning on the barrier and crossed it, looking for any sign that the police might have missed. I was shocked to find a boy's shoe prints in the dirt. At this stage in the game, I expected to find too many tracks to distinguish. Maybe the officers had just taken a photo of the ground and didn't bother making a plaster cast. New technology can never beat the old school. I stepped inside the little enclosing. The fake cave that used to hold the zoo's big animals was pretty spacious, especially for a little boy, eager to play and explore. While I was searching the enclosing, I stepped on a toy that was buried just under the surface of the dirt. I brushed the dirt aside and picked it up. It was a little toy car, with the letter B etched into it in big blocky letters. It wasn't much of a leap to assume that this was Billy Baskin's toy. Now that I had physical evidence linking me directly to Billy, I could more safely traverse the maelstrom of time. Holding the toy car in front of me, I stepped out of the enclosing and into the park proper. I opened myself up to the Verum Visio. The lines that bind creation became visible to me. I could see beyond the four dimensions that humans routinely interact with, and could see into the realm where the spirits, monsters, and demons affect mortal time. In my time studying, I've come to learn how to almost control what I see, so that I'm not overwhelmed by the sheer force of information flooding my mind's eye. You see, opening oneself to the Verum Visio allows one to see time differently, and that can destroy a man's mind in a heartbeat. Of course, controlling the Visio is insanely precarious, because you have to allow yourself to relax in order to gain control. And as you relax, other things know that you can see them. And they don't like that. It is easier for them to attack you when you know they're present. Heisenberg's principles apply to demons as well as to molecules. As I relaxed my eye muscles, my left eye became lazy and drifted off. My right eye stayed focused, and I used the weakened muscles of my eyes to direct myself to the time I needed to be, the past. I navigated the eddies of Time's River, dismissed the present and the future, and found myself standing outside my body in the past. Since I had distanced myself from the present and the future, all the past was stretched before me. Eternity past can only be seen as a giant blur of flickering color. The human mind is not capable of comprehending eternity, so I had to focus my sight specifically. I narrowed my vision and pulled my lazy left eye into focus. I held the toy as an anchor to help me find what I was looking for. One fleeting glimpse from yesterday. I don't need much of a window to see what was only a few seconds, the moment of the boy's kidnapping. After an eternity of relative time spent searching, I found the moment I was looking for. A boy playing in the park with his mother. She was distracted by her cell phone and wasn't watching her son. He was babbling as children without siblings are prone to do. What the mother couldn't see, I could. That her son was not talking to himself, but was talking to an elfin child who had cloaked himself from mortal adult eyes. An imaginary friend, if you will. However, this specter was not a threat. 
Kids always have hidden friends when they're very young, and it's exceedingly rare that they prove dangerous to the child. As I was peering through time, I heard hoofbeats approaching. Heavy, rapid, as though a Clydesdale were trotting closer. I turned my sight to the sound, and I saw a spectral woman riding a unicorn. She was a ghostly image, a blur of faded colors in a woman's form. She wore a tattered white dress. Her feet were bare, but damaged. And it wasn't the soles of her feet that were rough and calloused, but the tops of her feet were ragged and bloody. Her skin and features were distinctly Caucasian, while her hair was frizzy and brown. There were rust-colored specks under her fingernails, almost certainly dried blood. Her most striking feature, however, were her eyes. They were a black deeper than the darkest shadow you see on Earth. I don't know how to describe it other than a hungry, covetous black. The unicorn she was riding was wild-eyed, with a single, blood-spattered horn jutting from its forehead. Its coat was a sickly green, as green as diseased flesh. The woman in bee scalp toward the child. Without pausing to slow the unicorn, she reached down and grabbed the boy by the arm and yanked him into her lap. She wheeled her mount around, and I saw the boy was unconscious, either asleep or already dead. The woman and the horse galloped off to the southeast. I didn't need to follow them with a verambicio. Her physical description matched Nancy's. The girl who had been killed by a fallen tree branch while she and her boyfriend were having sex on a picnic table. For all that time, their ghosts have haunted the picnic table where they died. Until now, I hadn't heard of either of them leaving the area. And I'd definitely never heard of a sickly unicorn. But there's only one Caucasian woman in a white dress who haunts Griffith Park. Yes, there are enough ghosts in Griffith Park that one can distinguish them by physical characteristics like race and hair color. I hate ghosts. It's depressing to interact with them, because they are forever trapped between Earth and Hell until they either accept their destination or until the final judgment. As a result, lost spirits are wildly unpleasant and often unpredictable. Oh, and territorial. If I was going to Nancy's haunt, I'd have to be careful not to touch the table she died on, or the tree branch that killed her. Yes, despite multiple attempts by the city, that tree branch is still perched on the table. Multiple city workers tried to remove it. Each of them reported it having chest pains. The picnic table, fortunately, is not very far from the old zoo. Finding ghosts when you're not expecting them can be a harrowing experience. Finding them when you're prepared is still pretty terrifying, since they're usually angry dead people who can have power over an area greater than any mere mortal can exert. Their anger allows them an ability to touch the mortal realm in very specific places and to do things that normal mortals cannot. They can alter the temperature, they can telekinetically move objects, and, if they're sufficiently angry, they can even affect human bodies, possessing and sometimes killing them. I approached the table, and knowing that I have to address angry spirits, I screwed my courage to the sticking place and cried out in a loud voice, Nancy, I've come to negotiate with you for the living soul and body of Billy Baskins. Control, I'm going to try and capture how it felt when Nancy spoke. Uh, she whispered, right by, it sounded like right by my ear, but I couldn't hear her with my ears, but with my soul. Go away, mortal man. You will not take my son from me. I fought back a shiver, 
He is not yours to claim. His mother is alive and worried. I have always wanted a child of my own. He is mine. That was my clue to what Nancy wanted. For whatever reason, she was able to exert power outside of her usual haunt, and found an isolated child to satisfy her longing to be a mother. At this point, Nancy decided to step into mortal time, and appeared before me in her spectral form. Her eyes were hollow blackness, deeper than any mind shaft, and in them was both an anger and a fear that mortal man cannot fully express or comprehend. A person has to be dead to experience that degree of desperation and hatred. The second our eyes locked, my hand jetted for the cross I wore around my neck. Popular fiction seems to think vampires are afraid of crucifixes, but in reality, we do not show the sign of our Lord to strike fear in the undead, but to proclaim our credentials to the beings of the realm of spirit and thought. If one is going to negotiate with spirits, <laughs> it's best to wear your authority plainly, because mortal man is not on an even footing with those of the deeper dimensions. Nancy, I called out again, in a firm, unyielding voice. I would negotiate for the living and unharmed body and soul of Billy Baskins. There are very few mechanisms by which a mortal man can confront a spirit, and as I am no priest, I cannot exercise one and force it to face the final judgment. However, those who are caught between heaven, hell, and earth crave for anything that will make them feel real again, if only for a moment. This is why vampires drink blood, why the soulless make pacts with the unsold, and why ghosts possess the living. They all seek something they cannot have, as if they were crack addicts seeking their next fix. She whispered once again to my soul, I now have a son. What could you offer me that is better than that? It is not uncommon for female ghosts to kidnap children so that they can satiate their mothering instincts. But, as they are dead, the ghosts cannot care for the child, and they usually die of exposure or starvation. I've heard that these ghosts, hearing the cries of starving children, will sometimes themselves cry out in anguish at not being able to care for the child that they have stolen and will slip deeper into madness. Not able to care for the child. That triggered a thought. Sometimes, sometimes, you can negotiate with the dead. I spoke up. In exchange for the boy, I offer up this bar of chocolate, that you may remember what it is to taste food. Ghosts respond better to formal speech. It carries authority that casual slang cannot. I opened my backpack and withdrew the travel provisions I carried with me. To sweeten the deal, Beside the bar of chocolate, I placed a bottle of water. It was frozen when I first put it in my bag, but now it had melted and was merely cold. The ghost drifted closer to me to inspect the food. Her feet passed through the earth, as if she was being dragged, rather than walking on top of the soil. That was why the soles of her feet were pristine, while the tops of her feet were ragged and bloody. She reached out her blood-stained fingers to grab the food, but her hands passed through them. I had not yet yielded permission to her to take them, Spirits and ghosts are bound by very strict rules. In a firm voice, I said, First, the boy, then the food is yours. Without any hesitation or a second of doubt, she looked over at the picnic table. There was nothing there. Then, as though looking through a heat mirage, the air shimmered around the table, and where previously was just empty ground, I saw a child asleep under one of the benches attached to the table. Nancy turned back to me and cocked an eyebrow, waiting expectantly. I looked at her nonplussed and said, Say the words. The ghost looked directly into my eyes and said, I yield all claims on the boy. 
in exchange of the food offered. In the same formal tone, I said, In exchange for the unharmed body and soul of Billy Baskins, I yield all claims on this bar of chocolate and this bottle of water. As the last syllable left my lips, Nancy pounced on the food. I hurried over to Billy. I have seen ghosts eat before, and it is exceedingly depressing, watching them try to capture the feeling of being alive. I'm not a ghost hunter, demanding answers of the dead. These are people. They are doomed. It never hurts to treat them with that last little bit of respect that they will never otherwise get. So I left her to her gluttonous feast. Billy was asleep and cold. I shook him awake, and the second he woke up from a deep sleep, seeing a strange adult, he screamed and started fighting me. I calmed him down by telling him over and over again that I was a park ranger and I was here to help him. He calmed down a bit and asked to see my badge. <laughs> of course. So I lied, and I told him that park rangers aren't like police, and they don't carry badges. I offered him a bag of beef jerky from my backpack. I had no idea when he'd eaten last, but it was a sure bet that he'd be hungry. Kids always are. I talked to him for a little bit, gave him back his toy car, and set him at ease. He hugged that toy car with all his strength. He didn't remember anything that had happened. It was as if he had simply fallen asleep while he was playing at the old zoo. I didn't want to lie to him, but I had to comfort him, and donning the air of authority would, I thought, provide him that feeling of safety. I bundled up little Billy, and I carried him out of the park. He was still exhausted from the mystical nap, and so he dozed with his head on my shoulder as I carried him out. As we left, for the second time that day, I heard the birds stop chirping, and the bees stop buzzing. All life around me had stopped. Nature was waiting. I felt the hairs on my neck prick, and I felt cold from head to toe. I knew that if I were to slip into the Vermvisio, I'd see Nancy, and likely her dead lover, and possibly some other horror, all staring at me as I carried little Billy out of the lion's den and into safety. So, Control, the case of Billy Baskins wrapped up with me taking him to Father John at St. Mary's, since he's one of our child protection auxiliaries. I trust you'll know who to send to lay to rest the spirit in Griffith Park. Perhaps a certified exorcist will be able to question the spirit to gather more information, possibly find out how she was able to leave her sphere of influence to kidnap a child. But at this point, I've reached the limits of what I'm capable of doing. I'll drop off a written report with my case notes at the usual spot. Until then... Jim Donovan out.